I trust you have your Bibles open to Matthew's Gospel, once again, chapter 5. We come to the sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, but we'll get a running start and read verses 1 through 8 together because all of these tie together, all of the beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set or seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Just as mercy, which we considered last week, was a foreign concept to the Roman mind and world, so purity of heart was something that the Pharisees among the Jews of Jesus' day were not very much concerned with. As Jesus indicted them in another place in the gospel, they were concerned about the outside of the cup and the platter. But inside, Jesus said they were full of extortion and excess. But their Old Testament scriptures that they claimed to revere certainly were concerned about inner purity. Just a few weeks ago, we stood and read from the 24th Psalm. That was our responsive reading for the day. And the question is asked there in verses 3 and 4, and it's answered, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? And the answer is, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Not only doing obedient things outwardly, but it stems from a heart devoted to God. So the Pharisees revered David, but they didn't want to have the kind of heart David was talking about. With the fifth beatitude, last week, blessed are the merciful, Jesus cuts to the chase and He deals with the heart. To really be merciful is a matter of the heart. As we were reminded by, by Paul in his great inspired love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he begins by saying that it's possible to even give one's life as a martyr, as well as to speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and still not have love motivating in that. And he said, if that's the case, he says, we're no better than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't want to be like that. And so, Jesus aims for the heart. Son, give me thine heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Wow, what a stupendous statement. On the surface, it seems so important and so foundational and so comprehensive. Well, why didn't Jesus just put that first? Why isn't that the first beatitude? Well, I think there's a reason. I'd like to take a stab at it, okay? I think the reason that's not the first beatitude is all wrapped up in the sequence of the beatitudes. The order of them is important. 
Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness is the fourth, and that is the apex. That is the watershed one. The three before that lead up to it. The ones that follow it are the result of it. We need to understand how badly, how desperately we need righteousness that God alone can provide. So I hope you remember that. If there's an apex, if there's a high point, if there's a a top priority beatitude, it's that one, the fourth one, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, and then being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, and passively enduring persecution for righteousness sake, they just follow in that train as a result of that. I hope you see there are relationships and connections between these beatitudes. Do you realize the Bible wasn't just thrown together? Sometimes we read things, especially over the book of Proverbs, and say, wow, they're so disjoint, I don't know what rhyme or reason they have. There is a rhyme or reason, I promise you. And the more you study the Word of God, the more you'll come to appreciate that. God is proactive. He's not just reactive. There was a time when unfallen man in the Garden of Eden, in a sense, did see God and had unbroken fellowship with Him. God came down in the cool of the day and had sweet fellowship with Adam and Eve. And, of course, that speaks to the purpose for creating man in the first place, as we read in the famous Westminster Confession. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's good. But you know what? Something happened. We don't know how long after man was created, but something happened. Something terrible, something tragic, for which God banished our first parents from their first home, that perfect home, and from His face. No more unbroken fellowship. No more could they see God and live. Even Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth, the great believer that he was, the model that he was, the prophet, the intercessor, even Moses couldn't see God, only his hinder parts. Something tragic happened. That's not the way it was to begin with. Is that the final word God gives on the matter? Is this beatific vision as it's called, the vision of God, is this unbroken fellowship forfeited forever? I'm glad I can tell you, no, no, it's not. In the fullness of time, this holy offended God sent His Son in human flesh to this speck in His universe called earth, the only place in His universe where His will is not perfectly done. And when his son Jesus got here, not too long after he started his ministry publicly at the age of 30, he said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. What a claim. The Jews didn't like it. They picked up stones to try to kill him for that. But he told the truth. And Jesus told his own and by extension, us today, how spiritually we can see God, even now.
I don't know about you, but I hope you came this morning with a deep desire for that to be the case. I hope more than anything else you hope to do this week or by the end of the year, you want to experience God. You want to see Him in whatever way God allows Himself to be seen. I hope your heart echoed to the sentiments of the choir song. I really appreciate that. Pure in heart, O God, help me to be. Oh, we'll never be absolutely pure in this lifetime, but I hope the attitude of your life is, in your heart is, Lord, though I will fall short of it, I want to die striving for it. You are worth it. To know you, to love you, to be with you, to see you in whatever way you're willing to reveal yourself, that's the ultimate. Nothing beats that. So, what does it mean to be pure in heart? And then we've got to talk about the wonderful promise associated with it. What does it mean to see God? I hope you came with an open mind and heart, a prepared mind and heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, let me say what it doesn't mean first. It does not mean that if you, give, if you live a clean enough life, you'll go to heaven. No, the purity in view here is what comes after the Beatitudes we just already expounded. The purity in heart comes after we are bankrupt spiritually, after we have mourned over our sin, after we've given up and abandoned our self-reliance and sought the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then purity in heart comes and we see God. It's a possibility here and now, not just in the sweet by and by. And I'll explain further. Four observations about purity in heart. You'll see them on the screen. I hope you're writing them down in your little book. Appreciate the kids that come to me and show me the good notes. I saw them take really good notes. And I hope they go back and look at those notes. And the Lord reminds them of the truth of His Word. Purity in heart, four observations about it. Number one, it affects the inner man and all of its various functions. The Greek word translated heart is cardia. Right away you see cardiac, cardio. has to do with the heart, the physical heart. But we're not talking about the muscle, the organ in the body. When the Bible uses the word heart, what does it mean? I want to take the time to really dwell on this for just a moment. I think it'll help us. When the Bible uses the word heart, especially in the New Testament, it's talking about the control center of our being, our intellect, our will, and our emotions. It is the center of our human personality. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. He didn't say blessed are the pure in language. Some people never cuss, which is good. They never use menstoes. They never use euphemisms. I appreciate that. But they can still die and go to hell. He didn't say, blessed are the pure in behavior. There are some people very, very moral, very, very ethical, but very, very self-righteous. The Bible uses the word heart to describe several di distinct functions of our immaterial being. 
First of all, it does refer to our emotions. I won't have you turn there because I'll have you turn to several other passages today. But in that wonderful book of Nehemiah, this layman that was used of God to rebuild the walls of, of his home city, Jerusalem, that were in ruins. When he appeared before the Persian king Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes could see something was wrong. And he said, why is thy countenance sad? Are you sick? And then he assumed, no, this is just sorrow of heart. I mean, Nehemiah couldn't hide it. He wasn't trying to affect anything. May I just stop and say, thank God for emotions. Yeah, they can deceive us. James Dobson wrote a great book about that several years ago. Don't trust your emotions. He was exactly right. But at the same time, let's not forget, God made us to be emotional creatures. Not everybody expresses their emotions the same way, but even if you think somebody is, doesn't have any emotions and he's just a stoic or she's a stoic, let me tell you, their spouse or somebody close to them knows they have emotions. They express them in some way. Our emotions have been so twisted and affected by the fall that we can't always trust them, but neither should we deny them or apologize for them. And isn't it wonderful when our emotions get on board with our intellect and will? Isn't it wonderful that when we come to church and, and we're stirred in our minds and our hearts, we can say hallelujah once in a while? We can get happy in Jesus. We can weep. The heart refers to the emotions. It refers to the intellect. In Mark chapter 2, verse 8, this palsied man is lowered on a stretcher through a hole in the roof by his four friends. It was in a house. It was packed with people. And the Pharisees were there. The critical carping scribes were there. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 8, And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? What they were thinking, Jesus called the heart. Proverbs 23, verse 7, was the first text I ever preached on. I was a young kid. But that verse meant a lot to me. I still have the, the notes on a, on a five by seven uh, blue card of all things but it was a blue blue card that verse says as a man thinketh in his heart so is he as a man thinketh where you think is called the heart the innermost thoughts the seat of the intellect the inner man with all of its various functions the emotions the intellect but don't leave out volition, the will. I love that verse, and I hope our young people have already memorized it. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his what? Heart, that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. So he asked just for pulse or vegetables when he was being tested there in the court of Babylon. Luke chapter 21, verse 14, Jesus said this, settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer. The place of predetermined response was called the heart. So, the word heart in the Bible designates metaphorically the entire inner person. It encompasses your emotions, your motives, your attitudes. It's the center of your personality. Let me just say it this way. Your heart is the real you. Purity in heart 
affects the inner man, all parts of it. Purity in heart, secondly, deals with the source of all sin trouble. Someone has well said, and I like this saying, though it's not found exactly this way in the Bible, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Jesus, who is incarnate wisdom, everything he said was inspired of God, said here, blessed are the pure in heart. He didn't say blessed are those who have a pure environment. That's where we see a lot of the emphasis nowadays, by secular man. No, Adam and Eve fell in a perfect environment, in paradise. What we need is not a better environment. Neither did Jesus say, blessed are those who have a pure education. A developed intellect will not solve man's problems. Some of the most brilliant people, the most highly educated, have turned out to be cunning devils. Hitler was pretty smart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Think of anything that's deceitful. Your heart is worse than that. Mine is too. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not just bad, but desperately wicked. We dare not trust our own hearts. And so we often sing, and we ought to sing with that great hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, I may have great thoughts this morning in church, but before the end of the week, you wouldn't recognize me. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Would you take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. Here, here Jesus surprises the Pharisees, and he surprises Peter, his leading disciple, when he talks about the fact that men are not defiled by what goes in the mouth, but what comes out of the heart. Verse 19, after giving a parable that Peter asked for an explanation, Jesus said this, For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. In other words, defilement is an inside matter. It's an inside job. People have wicked hearts, and that's why we do wicked deeds. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You know, God is long-suffering. He puts up with us a long time. But remember what it says in Genesis chapter 6, I believe, in verse 5, right before the flood, when God's patience had worn out. It says this, God saw that the imagination of the thoughts of men's hearts, do you see all those parts of the being? Imagination, thoughts, heart, was only evil and evil continually. God said, that's it. I'm going to destroy the whole civilization. Except for one family upon whom he had grace. That's what happened. God's patience does wear out. We need a Christianity that can change our hearts or we're in a bad way. If our religion doesn't change us on the inside, we're no better than, as you've heard it said, proverbially speaking, 
taking a pig and giving him a bath and spraying Chanel number no. 5 all over him. It's all cosmetic. It's not going to change his nature one iota. Purity in heart affects the inner man with all of its functions. Purity in heart deals with the source of sin trouble. I'm glad God goes for the jugular. Thirdly, purity in heart cooperates with the divine conquest. God does aim for our hearts. Son, give me thine heart. He's in the business of doing divine heart transplants. You may not have time to look up all of these verses right now, but I hope you jot them down. Uh, Jeremiah 24, verse 7. 24, verse 7. God says, and I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. Count me in on that, Lord. Ezekiel 11, verse 19, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh. The writer to the Hebrews, quoting from that great passage about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 10, verses 16 and 17 says this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds will I write them, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I'm so glad God aims for the heart. The object of the divine conquest is the heart. And that's why we need to be born again. That's the whole reason for regeneration. Jesus told an outwardly righteous man, the ranking ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, it was to a man like that, Jesus broke the news, you must be born again of all people. God's not after a reformation of society. I'm not saying the elections like we had this past Tuesday aren't important. I'm not saying things don't change because of some political changes. But beloved, God's not out to reform society from the outside. He's out to change men from the inside. And from the moment of conversion, we part become partakers of the divine nature, and true conversion results in a changed life because the heart is fundamentally changed. And the Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, out of the heart are the issues of life. Let's not get our hopes up about cosmetic change or moralistic society. The Pharisees were the moralistic crowd. They were the right-wingers, and Jesus had His most severe denunciations for them. God demands truth or purity in the inner man. As David cried out in that great penitential psalm after his awful sin, he said in Psalm 51, verse 6, Lord, You desire truth in the inward parts. People may think you're a, the most honest person that ever lived, but God knows your heart. And the upright man or the upright woman, according to what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, they are ready to hold their life up to the searchlight of God's Word. He that doeth truth cometh to the light. That his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Listen, if men could only see themselves the way God sees them, they would not be able to hold on to their impurity. And so when we sing that song, Lord, conquer every rebel power, I hope we mean it. Because only then can we do God's will from the heart. 
as Paul exhorted the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 6. He said, as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. By the way, as you train your children, many of you are making a huge mistake, and I love you and I want to help you. I'm not condemning you, but many of you are content to get outward conformity. But your child may well as be saying, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. Their heart has not been conquered. They have not, their will has not been broken, and you're in for some heartache. Because you have a name for the heart. Pharisees, that was their problem. Their religion was merely outward, superficial, and hypocritical. It was all for show. It was for the praise of men. So the praise of men was all the praise they were going to get. They weren't going to get any from God. They weren't going to get any from Jesus. Oh, no, he denounced them. And oh, how they hated him for it. May I remind you, as I think I mentioned in my opening prayer, Jesus died for your purity and mine. Do you see it that way? Well, don't take my word for it. Let's look at God's word. Turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. I hope you'll mark this verse in your Bible if you haven't already. Referring to, as it says in the previous verse, the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Titus 2 verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. That word means purchased people, zealous of good works. Jesus, would you write beside that verse, if you haven't already, just write, Jesus died for my purity. Put it down. I'll give you a minute to do that. Jesus died for my purity. And the next time you come to communion here at Friendship Baptist Church and you take that little wafer, the bread which symbolizes the broken body of our Savior, and you drink that little half an ounce or less of juice which represents his blood. Remind yourself, Jesus died for my purity. How can I crucify the Son of God afresh by going out and deliberately indulging in my besetting sins? It's a great checkpoint communion to keep us from sin if we do that. Jesus died for our purity. Purity in heart finally maintains single-mindedness. The word pure there, blessed are the pure in heart. You know what that means? It's from the Greek word katharis, from which we get catharsis. I think you know what a catharsis is. Emotionally, it's a cleansing or a purging. It's a word in the Greek that was used to describe an unalloyed metal. Now, you know what that means. Most of the metals we use are alloy metals. Steel is an alloy. It's a mixture of iron and carbon. If you have a gold ring on your finger right now, as I do, that is not pure gold. Even 14-karat gold has nickel, copper, and if it's white gold, it has some silver in it and zinc. Why? 
Pure gold would be too soft. You wouldn't want a ring that could be turned into silly putty. But a pure heart is unalloyed. It's not mixed with anything. There's no ally. There's no double-mindedness. It's single-mindedness. That's why the writer James connects those two thoughts in several places in his wonderful inspired epistle. James chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Cleanse ye hands, your sinners. Ye sinners, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. God exalts single-mindedness. God demands it. And this is what is wrong with so many Christians that all of us have to have have to wrestle with this. We have a divided affection. We are not able to say with the, with the psalmist that, in Psalm 86 verse 11, where at least we can't say it's a reality, we may need to say it as a prayer, unite my heart to fear thy name. Lord, I want to be all of one piece. Wherever you cut me, I want it to bleed the same. I want to be all of one parcel before you, Lord. Now rest my long divided heart upon this blissful center rest. We're not distracted. I can't get over what missionary Laverne Wall said to us, how those Zimbabwean nationals who don't have anything except Jesus, they pray for us. They say, help those Americans. They're so distracted. And we are. I plead guilty. Oh, that we would be able to say with Count Zinzendorf of the Moravians, I have one passion, and it is he. But we have so many distractions. We're compartmentalized in so many ways. We're deluded. We're an inch deep and a mile wide. And that's why we can't see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the single-minded. Those who are transparent and sincere, they're guileless like a little child. I'll tell you what, when one of my grandchildren wants something, they don't get distracted. They'll pester you to death till they get it. Someone has said, holiness is Wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. A man of integrity is a man of holiness. Wholeness. Well, I hope we're beginning to get a composite picture of what a pure heart looks like. Who are the pure in heart? Those who don't trust their feelings, but they give themselves emotions, intellect, and will completely to God. Who are the pure in heart? These are the ones who understand the plague of their own heart. They know the depravity of their own heart. They know they got to keep one eye on their sinful nature, and they just give that nature to God every day. Who are the pure in heart? They're the ones who've been born again, who've been regenerated. They've had a divine heart transplant. Who are the pure in heart? They are the ones who cry out perpetually, Conquer thou my rebel heart. Make it all of one piece, O God. I'm tired of the distractions. I'm tired of a divided heart. Well, now that you've understood a little bit better what a pure heart is, I hope we'll be able to appreciate more of what the vision of God is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
And seeing God is not just some kind of luxury, some kind of bonus for living a singularly holy life. It's a necessity. Unless a man attains to holiness, he will not be saved, the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's not teaching sinless perfection. The blessing promised by Jesus to those who have this kind of inward purity, this heart purity, the blessing is a vision of God. Does that entice you? Is that what you want? When the heart is pure, the vision is clear and we see God. I wouldn't agree with all of the theology of the late martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but some of the things he wrote really challenged my heart. A movie has been made about his life in recent years, so his name is a little bit more familiar than it used to be. Martyred in the closing days of World War II, just days before Hitler killed himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, They will see God whose hearts mirror the image of Jesus Christ. They will see God whose hearts mirror the image of Jesus Christ. Well, how can this be since the Bible clearly says, even Jesus himself said, no man can see God, have seen God at any time. And God told Moses there in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, when he said, show me thy glory, he said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. God told this wonderfully righteous, godly person, that's what he said to him, Moses. How do we reconcile such clear statements with the promise of this beatitude? They shall see God. Well, the time I have remaining, I want to answer that question. How and where do we see God if we're pure in heart? Number one, we'll see Him in creation. We'll see Him in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The seraphim that surrounded the, the throne and the vision that Isaiah, the young prophet, had in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. They said, the whole earth is full of His glory. Some of us are so preoccupied with the ants at our feet, we never see the glory of God. Some of us never see the stars because we live in an urban place. And I'm not talking about just getting close to nature. No, no, I'm not talking about that. But listen, if the children of men refuse to praise their Creator, the very rocks themselves that He has created will cry out. No force of hell can intimidate them. But the closer we get to God, the more preoccupied we are with Him, the purer our hearts become. Then nature is just directly related to God. Thunder is God's trombones to borrow from a famous poem, James Weldon Johnson. Heaven is His throne, earth is His footstool. The roar of the oceans is His voice. He's the one who clothes the lilies when we see them. He's the one who feeds the sparrows, and we see them every day. Not one of them falls without His notice. As Spurgeon said, man whose heart is pure will see God in nature. He will hear God's footfall in the garden of the earth in the cool of the day. On and on we could go about that. Some Christians do have more of an appreciation for their Creator than others. I hope we take the time to smell the roses. That's not worshiping 
the creation. That's acknowledging the Creator. Let's remind ourselves that as God's children created by Him, we are not the product of randomness. We are not the playthings of fate. We are not the victims of nature's struggle like the evolutionists would have us believe. We are created by Him and for Him to His glory. How do we see God? If our hearts are pure, well, we see Him, secondly, in Christ. John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to Philip, who said, Show us the Father, Lord, and it sufficeth us. We'll be happy if you just show us the Father. You remember His answer. He that hath seen me, Philip, hath seen the Father. And yet, Jesus had already said, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, He goes on to say, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. He hath manifested Him. I hope you're taken up with Jesus. I hope He's everything to you. Please don't fall into the trap of many unconverted men who pretend to honor Christ. They talk about how they are struck with His beauty, the beauty of His character. They talk about His high ethical standards. Don't be swayed by that. That's just the kiss by which they betray the Son of Man. They're not willing to call Him Lord. They're not willing to repent at His feet and make Him their Savior. But the pure in heart go further than just talking about the the beauty and the purity of Jesus. They are enamored with it. They are enthralled with it. They feel that there's so much more to this person than His human life. He is the divine Son of God, revealed in the Word. And though we, like the original twelve disciples, have not seen Christ in the flesh, they did, but we haven't. Yet we have seen Him with the eye of faith. And as Paul said we to the Philippians, we love Him and we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. As he told the Corinthians, he said, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when you see Him that way, Does it ravish your heart? Do you want more? Or do you close your Bible and get on with life? Do you see Jesus the way the spouse did in the Song of Solomon, her lover, as the altogether lovely one? Can you honestly say with reference to him, he is the one whom my soul loveth? The purer in heart you become, the greater will be your love for the lover of your soul. I think sometimes Jesus stands out of our little circle of loved ones like somebody waiting to enter, you know, a, a jump rope contest. Can't quite get in. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do we see God? We see God in, in nature, in creation. We see God in Christ. Thirdly, we see God in providence, in the circumstances. I appreciate Brother Joe's reference to Psalm 23 this morning. We can all quote it from our heart, usually from the King James Version, even if we've memorized from other translations, other parts of the Word of God. Usually we quote for the King James when we, talk, when we 
quote Psalm 23, but think of all the changing circumstances that David refers to there, the green pastures, the still waters, the paths of righteousness, the rod and the staff, the valley of the shadow of death, the Father's house, vivid images, but changing scenes. And it's interesting that if you've ever really studied the 23rd Psalm, about midway through it, I think it's verse 4, the personal pronoun is changed. No longer does David refer to God as he, but he changes to thou. Oh, I love that. There's a growing intimacy. There's a directness there. David saw God in the changing circumstances of life. And he wasn't content to just make him a third person remote entity. But if our hearts are not pure, we will not see God in the providences of life. You know what we'll see? We'll see ourselves. We'll be like that rich fool that Jesus told about in Luke chapter 12 in that parable, who when God blessed him and, and he, had, he said, I will tear down my barns and build better, the more God blessed him, the more he just saw his self, his stinking self. Twelve times in the space of a few verses, he, he makes a reference to the first-person singular pronoun. Me, my, I. He had eye trouble. We need to see Jesus in the circumstances of life, good or bad. We need to see Him in the trials of life. You know what the first reaction of many people, sad to say many Christians is, when something comes their way that they don't think they deserve and they wouldn't have ordered, instead of saying, what is God doing? They say, oh me. Woe me. You're off on the wrong foot already. Instead of saying, woe me, like what Dr. John Vaughn responded to that, he says, well, why not you? Why do you think that you deserve to be exempt from the common troubles of life that as the sparks fly upward? Appreciated so much Colonel Tom Capp's testimony in chapel on Friday here. Good number of people here. He said in the course of that, toward the end of his time, as he was giving lessons that he'd learned in the military and from the Lord, he said, suffering purifies us. I thought, ooh, I need to remember that. I'm going to talk on purifying. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart. Sunday. Suffering purifies us. It reminded me of 1 Peter 4, verse 1, where Peter said, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Doesn't mean sinless perfection, no, but I tell you what. One of the things, uh, if the main thing that God purposes when he sends suffering our way is to purify us, to make us more like Jesus. The, uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, uh, Shakespeare that said, sweet are the uses of adversity. And although that's not inspired, uh, there are things equivalent to that in the Word of God. Adversity serves to make us more like Jesus. And so I challenge you, regardless of what happens in your life this week, between now and next Sunday, just say, Lord, show me yourself. Show me yourself. Determine to see Jesus in everything. When you check the news on the computer, on the TV screen, or however you get it, on your cell phone, when it's not what you were hoping for, just have the attitude, well, let's see what my Heavenly Father is doing in the world. That's the right way to look at the news. Because history is His 
story. Even from the cross, Jesus ruled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They see Him in creation. They see Him in Christ. They see Him in the providences of life. That's why they don't fall apart. But finally, and most importantly, they see Him in the Word. In the Word of God. John 7, 17, Jesus said, if any man will do, and maybe you have a, a marginal note there that explains that, it literally means willeth to do. If any man wills to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, he shall know of the teaching, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You want to know the, what the main qualification for understanding the Bible is? And I'm all for Christian schools. We have one here. I'm all for Bible colleges. I sent several of my kids to them. I'm all for learning under an astute teacher of the Word, but I'm telling you, the prime qualification for understanding this book is to have a surrendered will and have an attitude that says, Lord, reveal thyself to me. Show me thy glory. God responds to that. Matthew 11, verse 25, Jesus said that God withholds His truth. He hides His truth from the wise and the prudent, and He reveals them unto Babes. What did he mean by that? Babes, little children, those who are childlike, not childish, but childlike in their humility and faith. That's the attitude that God is looking for, and that's what he responds to to help you understand this book. Beloved, so often it is our sinfulness, it is our impurity that prevents our understanding the, the doctrines and the precepts and the deeper truths of the Word of God. So often we think, it's, well, I just hadn't been exposed enough, I haven't studied it enough, I haven't, I don't have the intelligence or the aptitude. No. You've heard me say it so many times, quoting Dr. Bob Sr., but he was right on when he said, if you'll give God your heart, he'll comb the kinks out of your head. And he was right on. Our problem is so often, precisely because our hearts are impure, we don't see our impurity. We've grown so accustomed to sin, we just peacefully coexist with it. Our depravity doesn't bother us anymore, but you can mark it down. To those who are pure in heart, the greatest burden in life, you know what it is, is their lingering corruption, their sin nature. And so they're willing to go to the Word of God, and the Word of God is the mirror, and the more they read it, the more they see their corruption, but the more they read it, the more they apply the Word of God to mortify their sin nature. Because Jesus said in His great high priestly prayer, and He's still praying this for us, sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Could I caution you as we come to a close today? I've got a nice big digital clock. It's right on time. It says 12.15. So I've got 30 more minutes. No, I'm just kidding. But let me caution you. As you get serious about reading the Word of God, there is a kind of reading the Scriptures that will never let a man see God. Be careful how you approach this book. Don't approach it with preconceived notions. 
I know a lady in the Cayman Islands, the face comes to my mind right now, when my father-in-law was still alive and ministered there for 50 years on the little island of Cayman Brack. Every, um, they, they would have a watch night service. They did that faithfully every year. Friendship used to have one too. Uh, they'd have a New Year's Eve service. And, and, and those who had read through the Bible in the course of that year, they would get recognized and get a little ribbon or something. I remember when I was there and hearing about it even after I left, this lady got one every year. She was a young lady then. I don't rejoice in this just to be able to prove my point, but she's living like the devil now. She's living like the devil now. There are some who twist the Bible to their own preconceived, depraved notions, or their motives are not right. We've had kids go through the Awana program here at Friendship. Well, we had Awana, and then it was Friendship, uh, or Kids for Truth, and now it's Friendship Kids. They won all the awards, they got all the trophies, they got all the ribbons, and they're not living for Jesus today. In recent days, Governor Gavin Newsom in California twisted Jesus' words. He put on billboards outside of the state the words of Mark 12, 31. He was advertising California's easily obtainable abortions, and he put on there... Love your neighbor as yourself to justify abortion. The previous verse, verse 30 says, Love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. How wicked to use the very scripture that speaks of loving God to aid in the murder of his image bearers. So glad that Dr. John MacArthur called him out on it. He wrote an open letter. I love the spirit of the letter. He said, I'm concerned for your soul if you do such a thing so wicked as that. It's not automatic that if you just read this book, you'll become pure. You've got to approach it right. The pure in heart do that. They see God because they're not distracted by other things. They are wholly observe, uh, uh, absorbed in the contemplation of God. They are completely satisfied in God. And therefore, they enter into this sublime blessedness. They see God. Folks, God offers that to you and to me. That's not just 2,000 years ago to the 12. Any takers? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessed word and spirit. Please bring to our remembrance what we've heard this morning. We would be pure because we would see God. There's so much that militates against that, so much we have to contend with, our own sinful nature, a fallen world, a real devil oppose us. But thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. May we see the beauty of holiness, the intrinsic value of purity. May we jealously guard our hearts and not prostitute our love on anything or anybody, the love that belongs only to Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.